the hottest takes and sharpest insights, you're listening to Camelo's Corner with Chris Camelo, your voice in the world of sports. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to Camelo's Corner. I am your host, Chris Camelo. It is indeed a super week. We are merely days away from the Super Bowl, Super Bowl 56 here in beautiful, sunny, summer-like Southern California, the LA Rams, the NFC champions taking on the Cincinnati Bagels, your AFC champs. We're going to be breaking that down as we are, what, 48 hours away from kickoff of Super Bowl 56. Cannot wait. I've got a very special guest coming on later on to help me break that all down. The Lakers. Oh, can it become any more of an unmitigated disaster at this point? Back-to-back losses, getting shellacked at home by the Milwaukee Bucks. 24 hours later, they, they lose to a Portland Trailblazers team that now has every incentive to lose uh, after making three trades in five days. No Dame Lillard. C.J. McCollum is gone. Uh, a lot of other players. Norman Powell is gone, and yet the Lakers still could not dig out a win. What is going on with the Lakers? What happened to them at the trade deadline? And speaking of the NBA trade de- deadline, a flurry of last-minute moves in one that was sort of unprecedented, a superstar for a superstar. We're going to be getting de- to the nitty-gritty of the blockbuster deal struck between the, uh, excuse me, the Brooklyn Nets and the Philadelphia 76ers. Covering all of that today, so much to get into on this edition of Camelo's Corner. But before we do, be sure to download and follow all my podcasts on all major streaming platforms. I'm on Spotify. I'm on SoundCloud. I'm on Google Play. And of course, I'm on Apple iTunes. Leave me that five-star rating. Drop a comment. And let's get that dialogue started. Okay. Uh, all right. I, I suppose I should start off with the Lakers, you know, given the fact I am an L.A.-based podcaster, journalist, reporter, whatever, what have you. But I'd be remiss. If I didn't want to talk about the Ben Simmons and James Harden trade, which a lot of people did not think it was going to happen, at least not right now, that a trade like this to happen a mere day before the deadline or the morning of the deadline, it's almost unprecedented. Remember, let's go back a couple of years. The Lakers were trying to land Anthony Davis in 2019. Trade got too complicated. New Orleans did not negotiate in good faith. And Magic Johnson, who was then the president of basketball operations for the Lakers, decided to walk away from the deal and say, you know what? We'll deal with this another time. He ain't going nowhere. We're not going to get fleeced like this. You're not going to negotiate in good faith. That's fine. Which I sort of thought was going to happen this time around with Simmons and Harden, that a trade of this caliber, even, even when you are dealing with two superstars, it gets complicated. And the fact is you're up against the clock. I just never really believed this was going to go down. Boy, was I wrong. (laughs) And I haven't been wrong on a lot of things lately. I've actually gotten a lot of things right. Go figure. Because usually getting things like this wrong is sort sort of my bag, baby, so to speak. Austin Powers, little Austin Powers for you. But in the end, Philly and Brooklyn, two teams that have been on a lot of people still believe that they could be headed to the Eastern conference finals, even though Chicago's played well, Miami's played well, Milwaukee's starting to round into form. Cleveland has been good. 
Uh, a lot of people still believe these are the two teams to watch out for. So Philadelphia's had a really good season. Brooklyn started off good, even with the Kyrie situation, but things have kind of taken a turn for the worse. They just lost their 10th straight game on Thursday night, but they decided to go for it. James Harden didn't want to be there. We've seen this song and dance from Harden before. In fact, we saw it last year. He didn't want to be in Houston any longer, was basically wildly out of shape, wanted to be out of there, got traded to Brooklyn on the hopes that me, KD, and Kyrie can form almost a formidable, unbeatable big three, and we could dominate the Eastern Conference, get to the NBA Finals, and buy for a championship. That didn't happen. Of course, we all know what happened last year, the injuries. Then coming into this year, the vaccination status for Kyrie was not with the team, refused to get vaccinated, still refuses to get vaccinated. And the team basically has met him halfway where it's like, okay, we're not going to bar you completely, but we're going to allow you to play road games in the cities and the states that allow it because New York isn't. So that clearly did not rub hard in the right way. KD is out right now, right? He's got the, the sprained MCL, similar injury as AD. Not sure when he'll be back. Probably, so, I'm assuming sometime in March. Um, so Harden, once again, was upset. And he's got a player option for next summer. So Brooklyn was kind of cornered. What do we do here? Do we ride it out with James Harden? Do we try to convince him to sign an extension? Do we, if he opts out, do we do a sign and trade? If he opts in, do we do a trade? Like, what are, what are our options at this point? What makes the most sense? Now, obviously, Philly wanted him. Daryl Morey took over the team about a year and a half ago, or probably about a year ago now, uh, president of basketball operations. We all know his connection with James Harden in Houston. Morey's best years as an executive was with Harden on the court as his star player. Now, Philly's been a really good team. Minus Ben Simmons, they've had really good chemistry. Tyrese Maxey's had a great season. Matisse Thibel's had a great season. Embiid has been a monster, an MVP, uh, an MVP caliber season. Tobias Harris is still solid. Um, Seth Curry, even though he's been hurt, he's been uh, really good. So Philly was in a position where, yeah, they weren't in the top three of the Eastern Conference, but they were right in that mix. We're top four, top five. And a lot of people felt they, if they can get something back for Ben Simmons, they could. Now, I originally thought the Harden situation is going to be too complex. Maybe you should consider talking to, to Sacramento, try to get a Buddy Heald and a De'Aaron Fox. I think even a move of that caliber could help you go far into the Eastern Conference. But Maury stood his ground, decided it's Harden or bust for right now, and probably even for next year. Simmons doesn't want to be here anymore. The team doesn't want him here. MB doesn't want him here. Doc Rivers threw him out of that practice. His time was done. We all knew that. There was no salvaging that situation, whereas Brooklyn thought they could salvage the Harden situation. This was the deal that made the most sense. Now, there's no doubt that, to me, James Harden is still a better player than Ben Simmons. Ben is a very good rebounder. He's a very good defender. He's a very good playmaker. Harden could do all of those things as well, minus the defense. But even then, Harden is not a horrible defender. He's just not a committed defender. But Harden is an elite offensive talent. And you put an elite offensive talent like that, who can make plays for himself, make plays for others, with a really good big man in Joel Embiid, who's played like a, a, an MVP this year, has really, I mean, this is the best Embiid has looked. He's been healthy, thank goodness. That's always been an issue. It's never been about Embiid's talent. It's just always been about his durability. 
And you got a really good collection of role players across the board. So with this deal, in case you don't know, it was from Philadelphia, Ben Simmons, Seth Curry, Andre Drummond, and two first-round picks. One protected this year and one – no, I'm sorry, one unprotected going into 2022 draft in June. And then one one protected in 2027, I believe. In return, they get back James Harden and Paul Millsap. And Millsap was another guy who – you know, uh, didn't want to be in Brooklyn anymore, wasn't really playing, didn't like his role, et cetera. So they got two. I mean, when you really look at it, a lot of people are going to look at the Seth Curry aspect of it. The Andre Drummond did Brooke, excuse me, did Philadelphia give up too much? I like Seth Curry. I think he is a tremendous story for a guy that was struggling to stick in the NBA. It didn't help being the little brother of one of the, the, the greatest shooter of all time. But still, he has found his way, and he's become a very, very good role player uh, over his last, you know, three, four seasons. Going to Dallas and then moving on here to Philadelphia, he's been he's been uh, really, really good. Um, the issue is, I think both teams did well. To be, if I can be perfectly honest with you, a lot of people will tell you different. A lot of people think Brooklyn got a lot better. A lot of people will tell you Philadelphia got a lot better. In order to break down a, a, a trade, especially a trade of this magnitude of this many pieces, you always have to ask yourself, who got the best player? To me, it's Philadelphia. They got the best player. They got a pretty solid role player in Paul Millsap. I think he'll be a nice you know, backup, forward, center combo. Yeah, they gave up Andre Drummond. Andre Drummond was on a one-year deal anyway. He's had a pretty good season compared to what happened with him with the Lakers last year where it, things didn't go, out, go over too well. Uh, but I mean, still, okay. It's Andre Drummond. He's not the same kind of guy that, you know, he, he once was where people, I think raised some concerns is, ah, you gave up Seth Curry. Curry was having a great season. He's a good fit alongside Embiid and, you know, Doc Rivers, son-in-law, all of that, blah, blah, blah. You're getting back James Harden. And here's the part to remember. You didn't give up Ty- Tyrese Maxey. You didn't give up Matisse Thibel. You didn't give up Shake Milton. You didn't give up any of these young guys, Isaac Joe, right? So you got the best player. You held on to some key star players. And now Tobias Harris goes from being your second best player, which I think had a ceiling on it. I really believe had Philadelphia gone the route that they're going on, they maybe could have gone to the Eastern Conference Finals. More likely, they would have gotten ousted again in the second round. Now you've got a chance to not just go to the Eastern Conference Finals. You've got a chance to finally go back to the finals for the first time in 21 years when AI Dikembe, Eric snow, Aaron McKee, and that crew led the Sixers to their last finals appearance. So I think it's a good deal for Philadelphia because you were already a good team without James Harden. Now you're bringing in a guy who's an elite offensive player when he's motivated. There's still few who can do what he can do. He's still a top five talent in the NBA offensively speaking let's say Giannis LeBron Steph Harden KD those are your top five players offensively speaking so you get a guy of that caliber you got to make that move and bravo to Daryl Morey he could have said you know what it's not going to happen I'm going to give up hope I'm going to settle for the next best thing he could have done that but he didn't he ended up getting the guy that he wanted so while some people may think he gave up too much Maybe he did, but you're also getting the best player as well. You're in a win-now mode. 
And if you go as far as you think, and I always say this when people are like, oh, the picks, the picks, the picks. When you are in a situation to win now, the picks don't matter. They don't. Okay, you give up some first rounders. I got a chance to, to, to get James Harden, pair him with Joel Embiid, good collection of role players, good head coach and a good coaching staff in Doc Rivers and Sam Cassell and Dave Yeager and those guys. I've got to do it. So bravo for sticking to your guns and going with what you believe in. Now, did Brooklyn get better out of this? Absolutely. But Kyrie's still only playing half the time. There's still a, a lack of leadership and I think a solid foundation in Brooklyn. Ben Simmons is dealing with things emotionally and, and psychologically, which I hope he's able to get passed through. This is not a physical issue for Ben. This is psychological. It's mental. We saw that he is not a good performer offensively with the game on the line that he doesn't want to shoot. Maybe that bodes well as a good compliment to both Kyrie and, and, uh, and KD who are offensive juggernauts. So from that aspect, I think you get a better complimentary player, but where's the focus going to be and where's the mental fortitude and toughness going to be when the lights are brightest and the stage is biggest. Yes. Drummond addresses the front court needs. We all know that. However, I don't see that playing a big role because Steve Nash likes to play small. I think he likes having Griffin in that center spot. I think he likes having guys who are able to uh, basically go for a position, positionless lineup a lot of floor spacing. So if you have a lineup down the stretch of Simmons, KD, Kyrie, uh, Seth Curry, and, and Patty Mills, I think you're going to see that type of lineup out there. That's where I think maybe they won the deal is with Seth Curry. Because you already had a, a lights-out shooter in Patty Mills. He's having a brilliant season with the Brooklyn Nets. Really good fit. That's been the one guy no one's really talked about in Brooklyn. But now you have Mills in one corner, and you've got Curry in another, who are you going to cut loose? So that's where I think they may have won the deal because Simmons can be like an all-purpose defensive-minded. To be quite honest, I think Simmons with that lineup could be like a Lamar Odom type. Well, Lamar Odom was for the Lakers. Good defensively, could handle the rock, can make plays, uh, you know, finish at the rim. Lamar Odom did all those things for the Lakers. He did it in more of a traditional like power forward type sense, but still Lamar in that triangle offense next to Kobe and Powell and eventually, you know, Derek Fisher and, and uh, Meta world peace. He was an ideal fit because this was a dude who didn't want to score. Wasn't a great score. Wasn't an aggressive score, but did everything else well. And I think that's where Simmons can kind of be utilized if he's healthy. But the question then becomes who's going to take that pressure off as far as playmaking when Kyrie and scoring, I should say, when Kyrie is not there. Because we all know Ben does not like to look for his own shot. So that's the concern there. With Harden, what irks me is the fact that this is the second time in a row he's been disjointed and unhappy in a certain location and wanted to force his way out. So the question I have for James is, is this the last time you're going to be doing something like this where you're on an active contract and you're, you know, it's not done in good taste and you're forcing your way out. So we shall see. But I do think the Sixer situation, Doc is a better coach. 
than Steve Nash, obviously. Uh, the situation with Embiid being where he is and being a somebody who wants to win, wants to be great, I think that's a good situation. I think I think the train is moving in a more certain direction in Philly than it is in Brooklyn. And I think the lack of accountability to Kyrie with this whole situation and not, not just the VAC situation, but some of the stuff off the court and Nash not really driving the bus that well. KD not really driving the bus that well. I think that's what hurt Harden's like, hey, I, I thought we were all here to win a championship. And the focus now seems to be elsewhere. So, and obviously KD felt some kind of way, as we saw in Thursday night's draft, all-star game draft between him and LeBron. James Harden was the last pick, ended up going to team LeBron. And LeBron knew, hey, I know this guy's not going to take James, so I'm going to keep forcing that hand and taking other guys until he decides what he wants to do. And so, anyway, he ended up taking Rudy Gobert. Harden ends up on team LeBron as the last pick, which I didn't see coming, but, hey, it was pretty funny. It was pretty funny. And, of course, when you got a guy like Charles Barkley, Chuck, stirring the pot and the rest of that inside the NBA crew, it's, 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 it's hilarious. So, yeah, and that was obviously the big trade. A lot of teams made good moves. Uh, there was a four-team deal between who was it? Sacramento and Detroit, Milwaukee, and I believe the Clippers. And they they all kind of made their own moves. Clippers actually quietly had a very good deadline. They got a lot of expiring contracts. They got a lot. They got rid of Abaka's deal. Uh, they got rid of Justice Winslow's deal, Bledsoe's deal. Um, they get Norman Powell, a guy that has played really well for them right now. Um, and is going to be a good piece for them once Paul George and Kawhi Leonard get back healthy next year. Everyone else is on expiring contracts. Rodney Hood, Sami Ojale, uh, Serge Ibaka now heads to Milwaukee, so he addresses the front court needs of the Bucks. And I think the Clippers not only saved money on luxury taxes, but they're also going to have a $9.7 million trade exception. So they're going to be in business going into next year. Uh, they're three games below 500 right now, but I thought quietly they had one of the more effective deadlines. Um, who was another team that had a really good, I thought I like, I like, honestly like what Sacramento did. They got DeMontis Sabonis. I think the team makes a lot more sense now with him there. They got rid of some of the, the backlog that they had at the wing position guard position. I, I know get, getting rid of a guy like Tyrese Halliburton, who was having a good season. It was not easy, but now you have a little bit more of a balanced roster. And who knows at Sacramento, if they're able to figure this thing out with Sabonis and Fox driving the bus, you got to, you know, I, who else did they get? They got rid of Marvin Bagley. They brought back Trey Lyles and Josh Jackson. Now you have a good assortment of role players that can actually help this group. Davion Mitchell's a guy now that can develop a little bit more, maybe get a little bit more time on the court with Halliburton gone. But Sabonis, I've been a fan of for a while now. I thought if there was one snub for the all-star game, it was him. Uh, the, given the, the numbers he's put up, he's got five triple doubles. He's averaging 19, 12, and five, five assists. He's averaging, I think, a block a game as well. So just such a skilled player. You know, I'm sure Arvita somewhere is, is, is smiling like, hey, that's, that's my boy right there. Uh, the late great, the great Arvita Sabonis. Uh, so, yeah, I, I thought they did really well. The one team that obviously was a disappointment who continues to be a disappointment, and that disappointment continued right along through the trade deadline, the LA Lakers. I don't even know if I have enough time to get into everything that I want to say on that. Cause I do have my guests coming up in uh, the next couple of minutes, but I'll say this. Wow. You lose to Portland 
Really? I, I, you know, you can understand the Milwaukee loss. Milwaukee's playing really great. They've had a really good road trip so far, even though they just got stomped on by the Phoenix Suns the other night. Giannis is playing at a different level. And Giannis, and I can't believe I'm using this term again, outclassed Anthony Davis and LeBron James in the same game. 44 points the Greek freak dropped in LA, along with 14 rebounds and eight assists. AD and LeBron combined had 49. Combined. What does that tell you? It tells you that the Bucks are on a different level. Giannis is on a different level than AD. Let's not have that discussion ever again. AD or Giannis. Nope. It's the Greek freak. And Giannis had not only a great display, 44 points. I think he only missed like one or two shots. And he was making fadeaway jumpers. He was making threes. He was dominating the paint. Like Lakers really had no answer for this dude. And the last couple of games, AD, who had been playing well coming off the injury, each game had gotten better and better, big numbers, big performances. It hasn't led to many wins at this point. And then he goes into Portland, second of a back-to-back, okay, but it's Portland, a team that, (laughs) I mean, let's be perfectly honest, uh, they're not going anywhere. They just kind of blew up the team in so many ways. They, they made multiple trades over the last couple of days. Uh, they got rid of Norman Powell, Robert Covington, CJ McCollum, who had been there from the very beginning, almost uh, came in, I think a year after Dame, he gets traded to new Orleans. Um, I mean, a, a lot of guys that were gone. I mean, I didn't recognize some of the dudes in that lineup with the exception of maybe like a justice Winslow, Nurkic, Anthony Simons played well, not taking anything away from Portland, but that's a game for the Lakers. You got to win. You've taken Portland two of the three previous times. There's no Dame Lillard. You've got to be able to to beat those guys. And I think that was the final straw right there. You know, Russell Westbrook not playing in the fourth quarter. It's obvious that he's kind of fallen out of favor with the coaching staff uh, because he's not score. He's not shooting the ball. Well, shocker. He's not, he continues to turn the ball over. Not always great shot selection, not great offensive decisions. And the most important thing to me, he ain't defending, guys. He is not defending. It's just sad. It's been a poor fit. I mean, the Lakers as a team are not good defensively. They're not good rebounding. They're not good protecting the paint. They're not good in transition. And all of those things got exposed that night against Portland and to top it all off, they decided to stand pat. Nobody wanted to help them. And we're going to get to that a little bit later, but coming up, what can we expect from the LA Rams in the Super Bowl? Got a very special guest to help me break that all down coming up on Camelo's corner. Stay tuned, everybody. You know what? Here's the going for it. And being terrible. Here's to giving it a shot, even though your shot is uh, garbage. To being the queen of the court. Oh, maybe not this court. To feeling the burn, even if there shouldn't be a burn to feel. To trying your best, even though your swing is the worst. Here's to going down way harder than you get back up. To giving it your all. Even though you kind of suck. Ah! 
Yoshi! But you know what doesn't suck? <laughs> Trying to do something you've never done before. That doesn't suck at all. Not even a little. All right, welcome back to Camelo's Corner. The LA Rams are in the Super Bowl for the second time in four years. Super Bowl 56. They will be taking on a very formidable opponent, the Cincinnati Bengals. It's already been a super week. We got a great halftime show. I mean, this is going to be one for the books, in my opinion. And hopefully it ends with the LA Rams hosting up the Lombardi Trophy at home, just like the Bucks did a year ago. And to help me break all of that down is the co-host of the Downtown Rams podcast, also part of the Nightcast Media family, just like I am, Mr. Jake Ellenbogen. Jake, thanks for joining me, man. Absolutely, Chris. Thank you so much for having me. Appreciate it. Absolutely. And let me just ask you first. I did get the last name right, right? <laughs> you did. You did. Okay. <laughs> well, Jake, it's been a it's been an unbelievable run uh, for the Rams. I mean, this was a team that got off to such a great start this year. Then the three-game <laughs> losing streak. Then finishing out strong. Then losing in week 18 and missing a chance to get that second seed. And everybody was panicking. But yet, here they are last team standing or one of them anyway in the nfc championship i just i guess my first question is this how did we get here well uh you know it's a, <laughs> a long journey i mean you really think about it you go you, you hire the youngest coach in the the history of the sport and sean McVay back in 2017 following a, a four and 12 uh very disappointing you know welcome home type of season uh to la but um, you follow that up, you lose in the playoffs, your first round, you know, hosting a playoff game immediately, all of this, you know, Oh, well, can McVay win in the playoffs? All of that starts to emerge. Right. Then the next year they go to the super bowl, they lose to the new England Patriots. And just, I mean, it, you want to write the anti storybook way of lose. I mean, that is literally it. Uh, and then following that Jared Goff, his, his play starts to falter down the stretch, right. uh, 2019, they missed the playoffs. They would have made it in this stupid 17 format. Um, and then 2020 hits and they look pretty good. Obviously the defense is number one in the league, but the offense isn't there. It's not where we're used to seeing it. It's not in the top five, not even in the top 10. And so, you know, down the stretch in that season, you know, not having Cooper cup in the divisional round against the Packers and, you know, Jared Goff playing with uh, nine fingers and not really even supposed to be the starter. They kind of moved on to John Wolford right. uh, before he got hurt. You know, you see that and you're like, okay, well, Aaron Donald's not healthy. They lose that game, but they're competitive. So you're right. thinking, okay, next year, it's either going to be Wolford, uh, you know, golf or whatever, or they're going to go after, you know, and get somebody. And I really felt like they were going to do that, uh, you know, really narrowed it down to Deshaun Watson, Matthew Stafford. And, you know, when I got the news that they got Stafford, I said, this team's winning the Super Bowl. They really were uh, that, that quarterback away from, in my opinion, uh, a guy that no matter how, you know, a game goes, uh, Matthew Stafford has ice cold veins. I mean, this is somebody that is just, you know, nonstop. Uh, he's going to go after it. He's played for, you know, a Detroit Lions team that has definitely struggled. Uh, right. He led them to the playoffs three times. Let's look at more. So he led them there. Not that he lost three times. I, um, I, I, I'm sorry you know. to interrupt. I, I totally agree with that narrative. Like, cause everyone said, well, he can't get it done in the playoffs. I'm like, 
he was only there three times. Let's not put this guy <laughs> in the same category as let's say Carson Palmer with the oh, Cincinnati yeah. Bengals, who was going year in and year out and getting ousted in the first round. I thought that was such an unfair narrative because the sample size was too small. And then didn't they go up against like the New Orleans Saints who went to the Super Bowl that year to the NFC Championship? So it's Gave like up 45 points. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. So, I mean, that I always thought ball, right? that. Right. Of course. So I always thought that was an unfair narrative uh, about Matthew Stafford. So I just wanted to point that out. But yeah, go ahead and continue. Yeah. So, you know, and I, th- I always look at it in terms of, you know, like the Romo effect, right? Because people always are like, oh, Tony Romo can't play in the playoffs. And there's some truth to that. Like he right. really did struggle. He didn't have that it factor. And I loved Romo. I thought he was unfairly treated during the regular season, but the playoffs, he just didn't step up. And with Matthew Stafford, what I kept trying to explain to people is you can throw 0-3 in my face all you want, but context is needed. First off, the first game, you look at the Lions game against, uh, you know, the Saints, like you mentioned, they give up 45. Matthew Stafford doesn't have an issue scoring touchdowns. He puts four on the board in his first ever playoff game. So that's not like, he doesn't, he's not ready for the big moment, right? Then you go to uh, the second game, the second game, they go up against the Dallas Cowboys in which Mike Pereira, after the game in the booth says they missed that call and it's an egregious call and it changed the outcome of the game. Third down, they, you know, he goes for uh, a little bit of, uh, I think a corner route to get the first down uh, for, uh, you know, Brandon Pettigrew, the tight end, and he's interfered with, they throw the flag, they then pick it up. And oh, Dallas yeah. wins that game. Then you look at the third game, and this is where context is very much needed. Going up against the Legion of Boom in Seattle. And who's your running back? Zach Zenner. So, mm-hmm. you know, to me, Stafford has been unfairly treated. He's held to this different standard. And while he's also held to that standard, what's bizarre to me is he's never given credit to be in that top 10. He's always like, well, he, he needs to do more. And then everything that he does is considered padding stats when in reality, they're down by 17, 24 points, whatever. And he's trying to play hero ball to get them out of this hole. Mm -hmm. And he's taking immense hit, you know, a ton of hits, a ton of pressure. And so it's just incredible that he's gotten to this point, but it's not surprising. And it shows you that everything that you probably felt when the trade happened and I felt it's all justified. Even if they lose this Super Bowl, it's already justified. We've seen this is the best uh, season for a Rams quarterback in their history. It's better than Kurt Warner. It's better than Jared Goff. It's better than Jim Everett. It's better than Roman Gabriel. There's never been a quarterback that's done what he has done for this team, this organization. So it's already proven. We knew that, well, if you just got a little bit more help, it wasn't the weapons. You had Calvin Johnson. Megatron, if you got a little yeah. bit more help on the other side of the ball. Right. Maybe just maybe he could bring this team to a Super Bowl. And maybe just maybe the 0-3 record would turn into a 4-3 and record. And that's what he's trying to do this Sunday. So that's how we got here. You know, a lot of the, the struggles, but you go, yeah, I mean, some great things, some, some highs and lows, but you go and you realize 36-year-old Sean McVay, 35 at the time, realized, look, Jared Goff needs to get us here. He's not going to do it. Let's go out. Let's get Matthew Stafford. Let's do this thing. And it's worked out very well. No doubt about that. And it does feel different than it was four years ago. It it just feels like one, you're not going up against the evil empire as far as the NFL goes with Brady and Belichick. So you kind of feel like, okay, inexperienced Cincinnati team. Yeah. Zach Taylor's great coach done some great things. Burrow has been fantastic. We'll get to that in a second. Uh, But it does feel like all the stars are aligning for a Rams Super Bowl championship. So you mentioned how Stafford has sort of flipped the, the script on, on his narrative. How has, uh, how has Odell Beckham Jr. Flipped, the, uh, flipped the script on his narrative? 
he he was broken down. He couldn't play. He's a diva. All of that. How it, how has OBJ become this great, not just great receiver because we already knew that this great teammate and great fit for this LA team. Well, yeah, you know, you look at the last game, uh, you know, nine catches, 113 yards on 11 targets when they needed him at the very most. He came through uh, in that Niners game. He took a huge hit, uh, you know, that that one that got flagged, uh, Jimmy Ward. I mean, that was brutal. Um, but here's the thing. OK, OBJ, the, the cancer talk, like how he, he is toxic and all that. I never bought into it. I think he's just an animated personality. And I think, you know, first off, you have to keep in mind, it's a rookie. He makes his catch. His life completely changes. He's now globally recognized. People are literally copying his hairstyle for Christ's <laughs> sakes. And, you know, then everyone's just expecting him to act the part, act sure. like you've been there before. He had never been there before. It was all thrown in his face. So this wasn't Joe Burrow, Jamar Chase winning a national title at LSU. They weren't that team. He didn't, he wasn't just fresh off a national title. He wasn't super popular. He was a first round pick, but he wasn't like the next Calvin Johnson, Larry Fitzgerald prospect, you know? And so I think that's the thing that we have to kind of realize is that he goes right to New York you know, with the New York media, they blew everything out of the water. Right. And, you know, now he's all of a sudden villainized and demonized by other teams. I mean, I know the St. Louis Rams, they went after him like they wanted to hurt him, man. I watched that game. You know, Rams fan here. I'm not trying to, you know, hate, but I'm trying to be honest here. Yeah. And I remember Alec Ogletree hitting OBJ after he was way out of bounds and then driving him towards the bench area. I you know, there I was clearly yeah. something there where people were tired of OBJ and sure. it's not like he <clears throat> was anointed this. He made a catch and everyone else was just kind of like, all right, you know, there you go. The catch and anointed him, the catch yeah, anointed, the him. catch <laughs> anointed, him, but he also earned the catch, you sure, know, sure. He, yeah, he I got did you. that. So yeah. it's uh, it's incredible to me that that happened. But when you look at it, he gets paid over 20 million per year with the mm-hmm. giants. Yeah. And then the giants are like getting immediate buyer's remorse. He had some injury concerns for sure. Some freak injuries, including one that happened in the preseason. Why he was playing is beyond me. Um, oh, don't then, forget Tom Coughlin moving on from Tom Coughlin to Ben yeah. McAdoo. So oh, yeah, that, ben, that doesn't ben work McAdoo, out that Yeah, you know, if you, you can condense that, but I'm not going to. I'm just going to be real. Ben McAdoo is one of the worst offensive minds I've ever seen. I cannot believe he's going to be an offensive coordinator for the Panthers. But I just heard uh, that too, yeah. <laughs> just just mind-boggling to me. But, you know, oh, you have Odell Beckham Jr. who honestly looked, he was like the same as Todd Gurley in space. You know, when Todd Gurley was like right, you know, healthy and in his prime, like him in space, he was gone. You know, mm-hmm. he was he was one of the most terrifying players with the ball in his hands. That's how OBJ was. So, you know, when you had a, a guy by the name of, like you said, Ben McAdoo, he comes in, he's like, yeah, you're going to run uh, two yard outs. You know, that's how we're going to use you. We're not going to get you in space. We're not going to use you deep down the field. We're not going to get you on those shallow crosses to get you some, you know, steam behind your runs and, and be able to pick up, you know, no, we're going to keep you as limited as possible. And I'm not saying he did that on purpose. I'm just saying that's how bad he really was. So then he goes to the Browns and the Rams tried to get him. I, I think a lot of people forget this. Yeah. The Rams were right there. They tried I, to get him. And when they realized that the Giants were just trying, like they they weren't really much of a negotiation partner. I mean, when you really think about it, they were able to get Brandon Cooks for a first round pick. That's it. Signed, sealed, delivered. That is the trade. Okay. They went and did that, but they wanted OBJ and McVay wanted OBJ. And 
they wanted to get him, but they wanted to add him on. And the Giants were asking for Donald. And then they're like, okay, well, we're not going to get Donald. So let's get Havenstein. And they're like, no, we want OBJ. We're going to give you picks, take the picks. We'll give you maybe a player, but you're not getting Havenstein. You're not getting Aaron Donald. We want to add OBJ to the mix, not take away from to get him. So it didn't work out there. They get cooks, but OBJ goes to Cleveland. And that was probably an even worse spot than the Giants, because aside from it not being the major media outlet of New York, it didn't really matter. Uh, This guy was not wanted there so much so the fans will go back and forth. The Browns fans will you know, forget they said this, but I do very much remember when they made the playoffs after he had that ACL tear. They said, wow, our offense is better without OBJ, which is complete nonsense because you take Baker Mayfield and he's not half of what Eli Manning was when OBJ was in the Giants. So now you bring OBJ to Stafford in the Rams and this offense that finally clicks and everybody has a role. Mm-hmm. And all of this talk about him being a locker room cancer, people will just say, and this is this is how this is a losing man's argument when they go, well, they're winning. Let's see how he does when they lose. We did. Because right off the bat, this guy is thrusted in there on Monday Night Football without any sort of preparation whatsoever. And keep in mind, he was brought in to be the fourth guy with Van and Robert Woods and Cup. Robert Woods suffers a very freak torn ACL. And now all of a sudden he's thrusted in there to have an actual role on Monday night without any preparation, not knowing the scheme at all. He goes out there. They lose in the worst way possible the whole season. People are saying, well, as soon as OBJ got there, they lost 31 to 10. They haven't had, you know, all of that. The next week they lose to the Packers. And so everyone's like, oh, see, they're 0-2 with OBJ. They're 0-2 with Von Miller. And then OBJ and company get that buy. They're able to, you know, regroup and readapt and, and integrate. <clears throat> and so what we see from that is that Sean McVay makes the moves of, you know, changing things around, tightening up the defense with Raheem, and then on top of it, using 12 and 13 personnel groupings to keep other defenses honest about what they're going to run on offense. It's a lot of mixing and matching. It's a lot of uh, basically, you know, trial and error because they were using Ben Skoranek. They had to. Jacob right. Harris and Tutu Outwell were out for the season. So mm. the Rams were thrust in a, in a tough role, and OBJ came out and was like, I'm not going to be the me, me, me guy. I'm going to be the we, not me guy. Yeah. And so much so he was rooting for Cooper Cup. He wanted Cooper Cup to break the record, whereas you had Deshaun Jackson earlier in the year as a you know a team that he was on a team that's seven and one. He left because of lack of targets. Whereas the, you know you look at OBJ and he's like, I don't even care about the targets. He is firmly you know bought into the we not me culture, and he hasn't made it about him. And a locker room cancer doesn't do that. So he shoved all that that away. He put it away and look, this guy probably lost more money than he actually really gained on this contract because the whole crypto thing. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, this guy's playing entirely, you know, to win a Super Bowl and he's bought in and I love it. And I think he deserves more credit and doesn't get enough of it. But I think he has a chance to really put himself out there. And obviously, if he were to win a Super Bowl MVP or just a Super Bowl in general and have a nice, you know, game, uh, that's going to go a long way in the future. I think he stays in LA regardless of of this win or or loss. Oh, I agree. He's found a home here. He doesn't mind deferring to Cooper cup. He's got a lot of friends here. It's a great atmosphere. There was a lot of dysfunction. Like you mentioned in in Cleveland between the coaches with Freddie kitchens and then Kevin Stefanski, you got a quarterback who's not targeting you. It just became toxic all, all, all the way around. I needed to get out of there. 
Now I come into a situation, great offensive minds, uh, gr- you know, really good quarterback, good team uh, chemistry. And now I'm not going to disrupt that. I'm not going to put my individual goals ahead of the team because if this works out, we're all going to benefit. We're all going to benefit. And that's where I think OBJ is, is at. So moving on to Sunday's matchup against the Cincinnati Bengals, how do the Rams take out <laughs> Joe Burrow, Jamar Chase, Zach Taylor, McVay's old protege and, and win Super Bowl 56. Well, you're going to have to pressure Burrow. That's, that's obvious. That's a given. Uh, they hit Jimmy Garoppolo nine times last week. Uh, so that, that's a lot of quarterback hits. They hit Brady, I, be, I believe, six times. And they got to Kyler Murray four or five times. That's what happens when you have Kyler Murray being able to run the way he does. Right. But regardless, you don't need to get sacks. You need to get pressure. Pressure forces bad throws. Sure. And as long as you're getting pressure and you're, you're basically minimizing how long your corners and safeties have to cover as well as linebackers have to cover downfield. So that's a thing there. If they can get four or five man rush and get pressure, you know, consistently on a really, you know, it's a patchwork offensive line. Let's call it like it is, you know, Jonah Williams, former uh, first round pick. He's a good talent, but he hasn't played all that well. He's just pretty much average. Quentin span is not the way he was, you know, back with the Titans. You look at Hopkins, Trey Hopkins, the center. He's playing really good football since week 10, but he's still somebody that, you know, he has to go against Aaron Donald, A. Sean, Greg Gaines, Sebastian Joseph Day. That's not, you know, a matchup that you can just assume he's going to win. And then on top of it, the right guard position that has been in and out. You know, you have the the former uh, draft pick out of Kansas, Hakeem Adeniji, who I do like a lot as a person since I interviewed him, but he has struggled. And then you have second round pick out of Michigan, Jackson Carmen, sorry, Clemson, Jackson Carmen. And to me, Carmen is somebody that they like long term and he has the potential, but he had you know, he had his struggles. He came in the second half of last game and he gave up six pressures, which was the most of anybody on that offensive line. Hopkins didn't give up a sack or a pressure. And then the right side is the worst. Uh, Isaiah Prince is starting. He was not the starter. It was actually Riley Reef, the former veteran from the Vikings. He gets hurt. They have to put Isaiah Prince in that role. And to me, everyone's talking about Von Miller. Everyone's talking about Aaron Donald. What if this is Leonard Floyd's breakout game? Exactly. I was just about to say (laughs) that. You beat me to it, Jake. He has not really. He's been sort of MIA. We haven't really heard his name. This could be the Leonard Floyd game. I was literally just thinking about that when you were saying that. I'm sorry. Go ahead, but I wanted to no, point that no, out. No, you're, you're, you're good. I mean, I just think like the matchup is so juicy and, you know, listening to Bengals fans and I look, I respect the Bengals a lot, sure. but they're like, all right, so we're going to run the Leonard Floyd side because Von Miller can stop the run. I'm like, hold, hold on a second. Hold on a second. Leonard Floyd is as good, if not better at stopping the run than Von Miller. That is why the Rams brought him in. Mm-hmm. Everything he's done since developing as a pass rusher has clearly been the coaching staff you know, getting him to that next level that he never got to in Chicago. So that is not why they signed him. They didn't Mm -hmm. sign him to be a pass rusher. They signed him to set the edge and do it well, because let's look, Clay Matthews couldn't do it. And Connor Barwin definitely couldn't do it. So they finally got a guy to truly do that. And then all of a sudden the pass rush and his ability and adding the moves that he did. And even Donald adding that, that jumps chop move that he does. He added that to Floyd's arsenal. And he has gotten a lot better as an all-around player. So, no, you're not going to just be able to run to Leonard Floyd's side to stay away from Vaughn, just like you're not going to be able to run to Vaughn's side to stay away from Leonard Floyd. It's just not going to work that way. Both guys stop the run very well, and that is 
the the golden thing about this this defense is that the front everybody does their job and they do it well. There's not, you know, maybe you could argue Gaines is a better interior rusher than he is a run defender. That's why they have Sebastian Joseph Day and he is back. So Good. they really have big, all sorts of weapons on the defense <clears throat> and we haven't even gotten to the secondary. So, you know, I do think Leonard Floyd who had a sack the last game uh, could definitely get uh, one or two in this one. I know the, the over under is 0.5. I would definitely take the over on that. Definitely. And, and that's the concern. You mentioned the secondary because I, I don't think anybody is going to deny Jalen Ramsey is going to be marking Jamar chase. The question I have is can Darius Williams or any of those other, you know, uh, who else is a, is a cornerback like Cockrell or rap or uh, assuming rap plays as well as Eric Weddle. Can they keep T Higgins who had a big AFC championship game? I thought was a major X factor for Cincy. Can they keep a guy like that? Even potentially Tyler Boyd in check. Cause I think that's where you may be able to win the game. <coughs> if you keep those guys in check. Yeah. You know, it's interesting, right? Because you look at the Cardinals and they didn't go up against the Cardinals with D hop, you know, he was out. And then you look at the, the box game and they didn't go up against Chris Godwin and Antonio Brown. Cause Antonio Brown lost his collective mind and Chris Godwin was out for the year. So, you know, those two there, and then you look at the 49ers and they were fully healthy. You know, they had, Ayuk, they had Debo, they had George Kittle. It's why one of these guys is going to get through, you know, that filter, you know, he, he's going to get through and he's going to cause a scene and it's either going to be chase Higgins Boyd, or even Uzama. Oh, but Uzama, one of them yeah. is going to get through. And the, the question is, which one is it going to be? And that's hard to gauge because this is not Jalen Ramsey, you know, like when Marcus Peters was on the Rams and Aqib Tlaib was on the Rams where they wanted these guys to shadow or follow or whatever. You know, Jalen Ramsey doesn't trail anybody anymore. You know, he's really used in the Where's Waldo star role where he's all over the place. Mm -hmm. And, you know, with that, it puts immense pressure on a guy like Darius Williams, like you mentioned, David Long Jr., who is... You know, obviously he's playing well down the stretch. He had a pick six against the Cardinals, but yeah. he's also somebody, you know, that has had his moments where he's gotten burned as well yeah. as Darius Williams, who I think is probably the only concerning thing on the Rams side of the ball. And I, I feel bad saying that because I appreciate what Williams has done since he's come over here as a UDFA out of UAB, who they basically snatched off of, uh, you know, the Ravens practice squad, basically uh, trying to sneak him on there. But you know, he, he's done an outstanding job. It's just this year, he hasn't been the same. Last year, he was very good. He had the pick six against the Seahawks in the divisional or the wildcard round to go to the divisional that. round. But he hasn't been that this year. I don't even think he's had an interception this year. So is he due? Is this his big moment? Like, is he like, all right, guys, I know you're probably not going to sign me. So I'm going to go all out and hope maybe I get my contract through the Super Bowl. Who knows? Because he is a free agent. Um I do worry about him being matched up with Chase, though. I think Chase can win. Uh, people, you know, forget Darius Williams is five nine. You know, Chase definitely can get up there, high point the football. Higgins is a major mismatch at six foot four. Uh, you know, versus him, and you've seen it in the playoffs. Burrow and him have this connection where, yeah. and I understand Chase does too, and that's obvious. But Higgins has this connection to Burrow where he wants it up here, and Burrow is going to throw up there. He's not going to throw the, you know, the small, uh, you know, the, the short pass down at the ankles or anything like that. He always knows he can throw it high because Higgins is six, four, and he takes advantage of every single inch of that frame. And so I really do think that that could be a mismatch there. Uh, Tyler Boyd is a former two. He, he has more thousand yard receiver receiving seasons 
uh, than the other two guys do. Yeah. So, you know, that's the funny thing is this guy is kind of been OBJ. He's taking a back seat and mm -hmm. he's totally fine with it. You don't hear a word, but he's very talented. Um, and, you know, there's a reason for that. He, he's a great route runner. He's very fast. And uh, this guy has very valuable hands. We saw the touchdown against the Raiders. That was very key, mm -hmm. regardless if you want to throw the whistle gate or not at me. I mean, it was it was a key catch uh, touchdown. But, you know, when you look at the Bengals, they have a lot of different ways they can go. And I haven't even mentioned what they can do with Joe Mixon and Samaje P. Ryan, who they've been using uh, quite a bit uh, as pass catchers out of the backfield. They could get the rookie Chris Evans out of Michigan, get you know, going out of the backfield as well. Um, so they have weapons. And I think the Rams are used to this, but they, you know, they let guys like, you know, Jawan Jennings week 18, he went off for over 80 yards. Uh, you look at Brandon, Ayuk going for 90. You yeah. look at obviously Debo, they give Elijah Mitchell, the yeah. Elijah Mitchell. Yeah. So you always have to account for that. But I think the way the Rams defense is trending and we'll see with the, the two week stoppage, we've seen very hot teams get very cold in the big game. Mm. Um, but the way they're trending, if they can keep that momentum going, Raheem Morris has this defense pretty much as hot as they looked last year with Brandon Staley. Yeah, that's a, it's a very good point. And it's funny you bring that up because I, I remember Super Bowls where random guys that you didn't expect to go off have gone off. I remember one Super Bowl, the one that the Seahawks lost, Chris Matthews was a major weapon for, for Russell Wilson. I think that was uh, uh, in 2014 or 2015. That was the Malcolm Butler interception. So definitely watch out for some of these no-name guys because once again, everybody is looking like I got to I always say this uh, coach Yost from remember the Titans, you got to give them something that they're not ready for. And I always think that's sort of in the back of these coaches minds. I got to give Taylor or I got to give McVay something they're not ready for. Jake, I appreciate the time, man. Got a couple more for you. Non-Rams, non-Super Bowl related, uh, but I appreciate the time. <clears throat> uh, another major story going into Super Week, and it's kind of cooled a little bit. Brian Flores, uh, formerly of the um, formerly of uh, the Miami Dolphins, and before that, a defensive play caller for the New England Patriots against the Rams, ironically enough, uh, about four years ago, got fired. Two weeks later, he sues the league. A lot of different things have come out on, on this lawsuit. He's not only suing the NFL, but the Giants, the Dolphins, and the Broncos as well. What can change? Or in your opinion, what can come out of this? Because clearly there is an issue with this Rooney rule and teams finding their ways around it. And it's created an unlevel playing field for many minority coaches, specifically African-Americans. Yeah, you know, it's a very good question. You know, what can change, right? Um, they added the com the compensatory picks, which I'll, I'll tell you right now, I don't like it because I don't think it makes any sense to say, like, for instance, Raheem Morris, right? If Raheem Morris were to leave, the Rams don't get two third-round picks for Raheem Morris. Why? He's a black coach. Isn't that the – he has to be there for two years. What difference does it make? What, what difference does that make if, you know, a team can just pluck your guys over and over again there could be a revolving door where since you're Sean McVay and you constantly get plucked anyway, a lot of your coaches are going out the door yeah. every single year. They can't stay there for two years. So you're not right. getting the compensatory picks. I feel like that needs an overhaul. I also feel like there should be compensatory picks for coaches being like, you know, like in, in baseball, you have to give away a first rounder or a second rounder, depending on who you sign. And, <laughs> and it goes right. to that team. I think that should be overhauled, but on top of it, the Rooney rule, it's like, you know, you interview one minority coach and you see the, you know, the list of guys that get interviewed and you're like, 
all right, so they're not going to, because you can see it's like, we're going to hire that. We're going to interview this tight ends coach that is 69 years old. He's clearly never going to be an NFL head coach. And I don't even think he really wants to, but I'll take the interview because it's experienced to me. That's like, that's abusing the Rooney rule. But, um, you know, I, I think it, it's, it's weird because I think Flores is onto something for sure. No doubt. I also, you know, I think that there's, there's so much to this, you know, there's so many different layers. There's not a right and wrong answer. Um, but you know, it's also something like with quarterbacks as well. You know, I think, you know, black quarterbacks are held to a completely different standard uh, than non-black quarterbacks. And so I think it's just one of those things where it has to get better over time. And we've seen that, you know, guys like, you know, Doug Williams winning a Super Bowl, the, the first ever uh, black quarterback to win a Super Bowl um, right. with the then Redskins, uh, now the commanders, really odd to say that, um, you know, but then you have, of course, you know, Randall Cunningham and Michael Vick and now, you know, Lamar Jackson and, Russell Wilson, um, you know, Russell Wilson, you, you got, you, you got guys that are coming in. I mean, Justin Fields, I really like yeah. a lot. I think Trey Lance is somebody that you definitely have to keep your eye out for, but for sure. Kyler Murray. It, yeah. Yeah. Kyler Murray there. There's, you know, a lot that aren't coming to mind, but um, you know, it, it's, it's just one of those things where I think over time, like you have to hope it gets better just by talking about it and just having sure. these conversations, right. there's not a really, you know, right or wrong answer because it, like it said, it's multi multi-layered. Like it it's is. the same thing with the ownership thing. Um, you know, I know uh, someone was going to sell. I forget who it was, but I think it's the Denver Broncos. Yeah, actually. no, the Broncos are sell. trying to get $4 billion for for the team right now. Yeah, so, you know, and, and Goodell was saying, you know, he'd like that to be a minority uh, owner. And it's like, you know, you want, like, I understand his point, but you can't just be like only minorities can buy this. Just like you can't be like only white people can buy this. You know what sure. I mean? Like you yeah. have to, you have to be inclusive in that regard. Um, but I understand, you know, him saying that at least highlights the issue. Like you got to keep talking about it. I think sure. if you want to solve a problem, because the first, the, the first step to solving any problem is recognizing there is one. I think the NFL exactly. has, you know, definitely done that. Um, but it's just, there's so much to it. And I honestly, you don't probably have the answers. I don't have the answers. It's bigger than all of us. Uh, and it's something that you kind of have to hope over time that it's going to, you know, somewhat, uh, get fixed and kind of surprised and, and kind of a disappointment that in 2022, it, it hasn't, but you know, there, there's definitely hope. And when you see guys like Mike Tomlin, it's really, it even sheds more light on it. And you're, you're kind of wondering as to why it's still an issue when, like the Rooney rule was put in place because they're a world-class organization. They solved an issue that was, yeah. you know, they, they solved an issue and now they're starting to be loopholes with that issue. But it goes to show, you, you know, Tomlin's one of the best coaches in the league and, and maybe one of the best ever. If yeah. you really think about it and he's a minority hire, you know, for sure. But um, it's also, but, but Jake, what annoys me, it's not just about hiring African-Americans. It's about putting all of these coaches in a position to be successful you yeah. know, uh, Steve Wilkes was fired after one year in Arizona. I love that you brought him up because that's the first thing I always think right. of. I'm like, he was just a placeholder. And, and you know, it, it, actually, Cully. Cully was another one. Yeah. And actually, now that you got me going, the Texans. Yeah. Let's be real here. Okay. You wanted to hire Josh McCown. I don't know why he hasn't coached above the high school level, but you wanted to hire him. Right. And you were going to hire him last year, but then all of that, you know, all the, the stuff came out last year and, the, you know, Sean Watson really, situation. Yeah. Yeah. So then you're like, okay, yeah. we'll hire a placeholder and David Cully. We'll make sure that he is, uh, you know, we'll, we'll make sure that he is a uh, minority 
uh, coach. So he's a placeholder. We check the box of minority coach. Then people can get off our backs. Then they go. They were definitely 100%. No one could change my mind going to hire Josh McCown this exactly. year. And then Flores comes out. And all of a sudden, Flores is what I would call a placeholder finalist because they're never going to hire him. But it looks good, you know, PR wise. Well, he was one of our finalists. Yeah. No, they changed it because Lovey Smith, as multiple NFL insiders pointed out, was not even in the running until like that final week. That was them basically saying we don't want to hire Flores because we don't want to have the backlash of him suing the league. But we we do want to make sure we're PRing this and, and you know, adding another placeholder. So honestly, it's disingenuous what they did to, to Lovey Smith. Yeah. And it, it's it's unfair to Lovey Smith. Yeah. Who now, you know, he, he makes history as the only uh, black coach to coach three separate teams, which, you know, congrats to him. And I'm a big right. fan of Lovey. Yeah. But on top of it, it's disingenuous to David Culley, because if that was the case, why did you like, why did you fire David Culley with a roster of a bunch of guys that basically signed there because they knew they get playing time and be able to get, you know, actual film out there for other teams to be like, okay, you know, I'll reset the market with Texans like Danny Amendola, the way he ended that season. Yeah. Now people are going to remember that and be like, man, Amendola could still play. I'm going to, I'm going to pick him up, you know, right. or, or Philip Lindsay. That's why guys went there. So that is really upsetting. Um, and like I said, I think Josh and I have nothing against Josh McCown, but it's kind of like just own it. Like Josh McCown was clearly going to be the head coach. And then the the Brian Flores thing came out and it was kind of like read the room. And they're like, oh, OK, like, yeah, yeah, we're not going to do that this year. So then they'll try next year. And if something happens again, they'll probably find another minority coach to just be a placeholder <clears throat> after they fire Lovey Smith for potentially having a decent season. I mean, I think, you know, Houston, they were competitive with Cully. They didn't win, yeah. games, but they were in games that they should have been in, uh, including against here and Jake, including against the Rams. Don't forget <clears throat> the Rams were up like 36 to like six or something like that. They stormed back, made it a game in the fourth quarter. They put a major dent in the chargers, uh, uh, playoff hopes by, by beating them. Uh, I think it was like in week week 15 or week 16. So, I mean, yeah. They almost just, beat the Titans, I think, right? the, the, the last game of the season. That's a good point, too. Yeah. So, I mean, it just, it's not, like I said, it's putting these guys, no matter white, black, or or whatever, because we've seen a coaching carousel. In it, There's a couple of different things that bother me. One, you're firing them after two years when you're not drafting well. You're not signing good free yeah. agents. You got dysfunction at the top. You're asking my coach to tank games, so you're offering yeah. me a bribe. You're, so you're you're sullying the, the integrity of the game. And yeah, maybe Brian Flores makes $1.4, $1.5 million. But what's to keep you from firing him, making him the fall guy so you can go out and get another coach? The other aspect is why are underqualified guys skipping the line and getting head coaching positions? You're telling me Matt Rule is more qualified there than Eric Bieniemy. You're telling me that Matt Eberflus, a guy I haven't even heard of, or Nick Sirianni, or some of these other dudes are more qualified than Eric Bieniemy or Todd Bowles or Byron Leftwich. I mean, it's it's a lot of nonsense. Even and and I can't believe I'm saying this. Kevin O'Connell, he's not he's not uh, driving that offensive bus with the Rams. That's Sean McVay, and now he's going to be the next head coach of the Minnesota Vikings. I mean, there's 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 definitely flaws there because there it's a combination of nepotism. It's a combination of we want guys that look like us or guys that we know. And it's it's something that Brian Flores, I'm glad, is shedding light on. But he's putting his own career in major jeopardy by doing it. But you know what? There's an old line. I will burn this village in order to save it. And if I've got to be the sacrificial lamb, 
so be it. Maybe I, I, I build a path for others behind me to not have to deal with this kind of BS moving forward. I mean, I, I agree. I think, you know, you definitely, you hit the nail on the head. I don't know which more I can really add to that. Um, you know, it just that, you know, I, I've had this conversation so many times with Nick and about, you know, quarterbacks as well, just being held to that standard and, and certain coaches. I mean, you know, just, just look at the way that they treated, uh, what's his face, Jim Caldwell, the way he's talked about, I mean, he's the only good thing that ever happened to Detroit aside from Stafford, Barry Sanders and Calvin Johnson, if you really think about it. So it's like, you know, he, he won with the Colts and then people will look well he was terrible with the Colts yeah when Peyton Manning broke his neck and he had to start Curtis Painter I don't know what you want from me so <laughs> you know it's, it's kind of that deal um and, and I just yeah I, I mean I I hear you there and I think like for instance like I'm, I'm happy Sala got a job um sure. you know I'm, I'm happy coach yeah yeah exactly like I'm happy for him um and he was definitely deserving and I'm more happy he's out of the NFC West to be honest with you but yeah and Riverboat, uh, Riverboat Ron Rivera got another opportunity in Washington and I hope things go well there yeah. By but, the way, you know, cancer what? survivor. So good for him. Absolutely. But, you know, there's there's also, you know, there's there's other coaches that have, you know, done well and, and haven't gotten the credit. And Raheem Morris is one of them. I, I believe going back to 1970, he's the only coach in NFL history to win 10 games with a completely new offense and defense, all 22 uh, with Tampa Bay. And he never really got a chance. Like he went back to the Falcons and um, you know, he went to the Falcons and became, he was a wide receivers coach. He was defense coordinator. He became the interim head coach. They were playing hard for him. You know, mm -hmm. I mean, look at that Falcons team. So I'm not like trying to advocate to like, let go of the DC, like the way some people want him gone so they could get Vic Fangio in here. I want to stick with Raheem Morris, yeah. but I'm kind of frustrated and annoyed because I feel like he is well overdue as well as Todd Bowles. Yeah. Definitely. You want to go back to the giant, uh, the, the jets, the jets aren't run well, you yeah. know? Todd Bowles worked with Bruce Arians in Arizona and was great. And like, I look at like Vance Joseph, for instance, and I don't, honestly, I don't think he's that great of a coach. You know what I mean? Like I, I just don't, his, his defenses are kind of, you know, wishy-washy, but Bowles was in that situation and that defense was really good. Mm -hmm. He goes to the bucks. They win a super bowl, you know, yeah. like I honestly, I don't have an issue with the Doug Peterson hire because of what he brings around him. I don't think he's the offensive mind that you're looking for. I think, you know, him without Frank Reich, we saw it. The ship completely, you know, sunk in, in Philly. Good but, point. Yeah, good you know, point. I like who he brings around. It's kind of yeah. like Harbaugh. I, I'm a big fan of those special teams guys. Like, I like guys like Mike Tomlin that will just bring in guys that he truly trusts. Right. You know, including Arians. Arians yeah. was an assistant coach. Yeah. Todd it, Haley. Exactly. Yeah. You know, but I, I mean, it's it's just one of those things like I I honestly as much as I like the Peterson hire I still think they made a mistake not bringing in Leftwich. I mean he had the experience you know being with the Jaguars the yeah. fan base wanted him um you know Mike McDaniel he biracial goes to the Dolphins but I mean how much is that like I don't know like how much is that to cover cover their you know like I don't I don't like it's Stephen Ross it's g disingenuous Jake that's what I'm saying it's disingenuous what the Texans did, what the Dolphins did. It was disingenuous. It, these guys are placeholders. You know, in Lovey Smith's case, at least he's got a resume where you yeah. could kind of give him some runway. He went to a Super here. Bowl. Exactly. Went to a Super and then Bowl. It's his yeah. fault they didn't win because Rex Grossman. Like, are you kidding me right now? Go, go look at Rex Grossman's stat. It's, he has more interceptions right. than touchdowns. I, I just want to put more focus on the resumes. And if they happen to be black, so 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 be it. I I, I think you 
want that sort of cross diversity, but don't just put a, put a guy in there because of who he knows or who, what he looks like or something like that. Look at the, the total encompassing aspect of it. And that's what really at the core bothers me on, on this. Uh, I got one more question for you, man. I really appreciate the time. Like I said, uh, Tom, Bra- Tom Brady announced his retirement uh, weeks ago. It was something I don't think we all saw coming just because of the season. He just had less than less than a year removed from a Super Bowl championship. Is he the greatest winner in professional team sports ever? The greatest winner? Um, winner. Yeah. I mean, the greatest winner would probably be Bill Russell since he won 11 titles. <laughs> Even as a Laker fan, I got to give him credit for that. Good point. It's a good point. Yeah. You know, but I mean, I think he's the most accomplished in a sense because I don't think Bill Russell was the best center of all time. I don't think he was better than Wilt. I don't really think it was that close, to be honest with you. If you look at the statistics, it's just not close. Um, But, you know, Brady has the MVPs. He has the records, you know, as far as passing yards, passing touchdowns, um, you know, and, and he's got the Super Bowls. So, you know, to me, I think he you could argue he's the most accomplished for sure. Um, to me, the greatest athlete ever is Wayne Gretzky. He's by far the most dominant in his sport. It's not close. Uh, And I feel like for people that, you know, don't watch hockey, like it's hard to understand, but just go and and look at his stats. He has more assists than the next guy has points. Points are goals and assists combined. So he has more assists than the second place all time has points with goals and assists combined. He is unbelievable. He was unbelievable. And he's never like, you know, I didn't think he was that underrated until I got older. And I realized like, you know, no one uses Wayne Gretzky in that argument. Um, You could say Michael Phelps, you know, you could say Roger Federer has been unbelievable in tennis. Um, Tiger Woods was up there, you know, Jack was up there. Yeah. Serena. Uh, Serena. Yeah. You know, there's a lot, but I really feel like Gretzky because if you can argue like who the goat is like to me, I think you can argue against Brady. I think you could say Rogers is a better overall quarterback at playing. Yeah. You know, I think if you can make the argument, if you could say Jerry Rice is the greatest, I mean, no one is touching his statistics. Right. He's the greatest receiver ever. And maybe the greatest player ever, or maybe you say Aaron Donald is the most dominant, <clears throat> you know, to me that that rules you out in a sense. So, then you go to the basketball. And to me, I think the, the GOAT is LeBron James. I don't think, you know, Jordan did what LeBron James is doing. And, you know, for that reason, I don't care about the titles. If I could get one game with either of them in their prime, I'm picking LeBron because right now he's still playing as good as he has been over the course of his whole career. He is just unreal. Point. Yeah. And so since that's an argument and then people bring up Kobe and they bring up Wilts and they bring yeah. up Magic and Kareem and right. all those guys. Now you're arguing that you can't argue against Wayne Gretzky. You know, you can't. No one, no one, no one. People like Boston fans. That's an interesting point. I'm floored right now by this (laughs) argument, man. But you know what? You're bringing up a lot of good points because if Gretzky's the greatest ever, who would be number two? Maybe Gordy Howe? You know, maybe. uh, Well, Boston fans are delusional and still think that uh, Bobby Orr is the best. And I'm like, come on. Well, well, his knees were bad. Okay. Don Mattingly had a bad back. He was the best hitter in baseball, you know, sure, since yeah. Ted Williams. When he, I mean, we, we could do this all day. I mean, well, absolutely. No, oh, it's, it's, it's if he doesn't get hurt. <laughs> and I'm sure there's still a legion of, of Frisco followers that still believe Joe Montana 
is the greatest of all time as well, even though he didn't win as many Super Bowls or have as many MVPs as Brady. But this was a guy who did a lot in a relatively short time frame, right? You know what I'd argue? What? I'd argue he's not close. And do you know why? Because Bill Walsh was that quick to be like, all right, let's move on to Steve Young. If he's the greatest, then why are we that quick to just be like, all right, Steve Young time. You're going to do Joe cool like that dog. I'm just saying you're going to do that. (laughs) And and I'll go, I'll go a step further. And this is where I'll actually give Brady credit because I know people think I hate Brady, but I actually respect the underdog story coming from 199 overall to do what he did and taking the pay cuts because guess what? Okay. I appreciate the greats. I am an NFL historian. I love looking back. I love the 1950s Rams. I don't think they, they get talked about enough. Uh, <laughs> but here's the thing. Wow. This is before the salary cap era. I think you lose credit because he's throwing a Jerry Rice. He's got this, this stacked roster. Yeah. And Brady has to take pay cut after pay cut just so they can afford guys to go out and get like Randy Moss, to get Gronkowski, to pay Gronkowski, to have mm-hmm. Wes Welker, you know? And that's the thing that doesn't get talked about enough. So this era, while it's always, oh, it's a different era, you know, whatever. Yeah. I mean, look at what the Rams have done setting up that roster in the salary cap era. Like super teams, I don't think they exist in the salary cap era. I think you look at like the Dallas Cowboys that won all those titles with, you know, Aikman and, and Emmett Smith and Irvin. Okay. You know, though that's a super team. You know, you look at the Bills. They didn't win a Super Bowl, but those teams... Like you couldn't even field that team today in this, the salary cap era. So to me, I, I don't think enough people look at that. And so I will hold that against Joe Montana and I'll hold the fact that, you know, his Steve young. And I, I think Steve young was a better player to be honest with you. Cause he did more, mm-hmm. uh, you know, as far as mobility wise <laughs> and everything. And I mean, he's, he's different cause he was left-handed, but you know, I, I, I really believe that. And I feel like Tom Brady deserves credit as well as, anybody that takes pay cuts to make their team better. That to me is, is what a true leader does. So I give Tom Brady a lot of, uh, uh, you know, it, you know, I, I'll definitely go at him a little bit with the goat conversation. I'll challenge that, but I got to give him credit where credit's due. And, and just the, during the salary cap era allowed them to go out and get those big names that that's on him. And that that's what makes him better than Montana. And I think by a wide margin, it's a, it's a compelling, no question. It's a compelling argument. There's no question that we could do this for hours and hours. Oh yeah. Uh, and you know what? If nothing else, we got to like him, hate him. You got to respect what Tom Brady did and the longevity that he did it for. I was 12 years old, 11 or 12 years old when Brady won that first Super Bowl against the Rams. And you know, he won his last Super Bowl in in New England against the Rams and he ends his career at the hands of the Rams. So there there will always be this weird correlation between Brady and the Rams, no matter how you slice it. So really great stuff. Jake, thank you so much for, for joining me today, man. I really appreciate the time. You were more than generous and extremely insightful. Please tell my listeners how they could follow you, man. Yeah, absolutely. You guys can follow me at JK Bogan. All my stuff is in the link in the, uh, the bio and Chris, man, I, I, I can come on anytime you need me, man. This is a lot of fun. Appreciate the time. Enjoy the Super Bowl. Go Rams. And uh, we'll see if they'll Rams. Be, we'll, we'll, we'll see if they'll be the last ones hoisting up that Vince Lombardi trophy. Appreciate the time. Enjoy the weekend. And not sure where you're watching the game, but have fun and be safe. Thanks. You too, man. Appreciate it. Take care. All right. The great Jake Ellabogan. Downtown Rams. Be sure to uh, download and follow wherever you get your podcast. It is must listen stuff. So thanks again to to Jake for for jumping on. All right. So the Lakers, 
what, what can we expect at this point, guys? You know, it's, it's what it is. This team is completely dysfunctional. They didn't get better at the deadline, but we kind of knew that, right? I mean, I, I kind of talked about it. THT and Kendrick Nunn have really no value outside of their contracts. Uh, THT's value is good, but not where it was a year ago when they were thinking about moving them for Kyle Lowry. But this is where we're at right now. What, what else can, can you really expect? Um, I'm not sure if this is something, you know, maybe they could explore next summer to try to move on from those guys and try to get somebody that could help them. But you were only going to get better on the fringes anyway. When I talk, when I listened to where they were at to moving some of these guys and getting some of these role players, I'm like, the team is not at a point where a shooter here, a wing there will make a significant difference. And as far as moving on from Russell Westbrook, Lakers couldn't find a taker or they did and they didn't like the deal. So they said, you know what, we're going to grind this out and we'll finish out the rest of the season with them and, and see where we're at going into summertime. I mean, that's really all you could expect at this point. So for Rob Palenka to address the media, face the fire, so to speak, he took some responsibility for it. Things haven't worked out as well as they had hoped. And that's where we're at. So this is what Palenka had to say about the team construction around Russell Westbrook and, uh, and LeBron and AD and, and what they were trying to do at the deadline. But listen to the question from Dave McMenamin. Is there any sense from your position, the front office's position, talking about accountability that today you're, you didn't accomplish your job or your goal uh, in order to give him more supporting pieces um, uh, for what's remainder of this season? During the entire course of my tenure, you guys know, because I've said it before, um, I've been very collaborative with LeBron and Anthony, our captains, in terms of shaping the roster and making moves that make sense. And that continued with this trade deadline. And um, you can't force another team to present yourself with a deal that's going to make your team be better. That's up to them. And throughout this process, we had different things we looked at. And um, like I've done in the past, had conversations with LeBron and with Anthony about it. And I would say that there's alignment here. Um, and that's all that matters. That's all that matters. Okay, well, <laughs> clearly, here's the problem. And this is something I'm, I, I understand trying to keep your stars involved. A lot of people think it's LeBron and Rich Paul calling the shots and Palinka is just kind of carrying out that agenda. Maybe there is some truth to that. However, I am, I'm still a firm believer that you have got to let the front office do their thing at times. And th they didn't need a massive overhauled roster going into this year. I thought you could have gotten Malik Monk. You could have gotten Dwight. You could have added a shooter here or there for cheap and still kept Caruso, still kept THT. You know, you could work something out with Dennis Schroeder or gone a different route. You know, I don't think you needed this third star. You know, I think you, if you would have gotten Buddy Heald, if you would have gotten somebody else, you would have gotten somebody who would have been further aligned with this roster. However, given LeBron's age, given the fact that he has suffered a couple of major injuries in recent years, given AD's fragility, they felt the need, like maybe we do need another star to kind of keep us level while those two are out, if they're out. But it hasn't worked out that way. Not only has the team not been successful, but Russell Westbrook hasn't elevated anybody. He hasn't made anybody better. He's been a liability at times, more so than he's been an asset. 
So that is the issue on here. So it goes back to last summer. And I know everybody was gung-ho. And if you're going to compete with Brooklyn, this is the way to do it. You got to get that third star, et cetera, et cetera. You have to also get the right piece. You know, the reason why I worked in Brooklyn was a lot of those guys were all able to do different things and they were all willing to sacrifice. Kyrie was willing to sacrifice the point guard role to play more off the ball <clears throat> and make James Harden the point guard, so to speak. And even now that didn't work out case in point, they just sort of made a major move, a major pivot away from that. So it kind of just goes to show you. And, and the fact of the matter is given Westbrook's contract, given the fact that he hasn't really won a lot in recent years, it makes you think like, did we make the right decision? Because we didn't get a guy who serviced our needs, didn't get a guy who was willing to buy in to doing less. And we didn't get a guy who is going to buy into being a better defender. And that's what it is at this point. So Lakers are stuck, you know, and, and they'll probably still make the plan, but even if they get into one of those, you know, those final two uh, spots, whether it be seven and eight, you ain't going that far. You're going to extend your season by another two weeks and one, two, three Cancun. So that about does it for me on this edition of Camelo's Corner. Thanks again to Jake Ellibogan of Downtown Rams. Be sure to listen to that full interview. It was good. And be sure to download and follow all my podcasts on all major streaming platforms. Follow me at Chris underscore Camelo on Twitter. See Camelo one on Instagram. Camelo's Corner by Chris Camelo on Facebook. Enjoy the big game. Go, go Rams. And hopefully by this time next week, we'll be talking about a Rams Super Bowl championship or another disappointing loss, but hopefully not that. Take care, everybody. Peace. Tune in every week for an all new edition of Camelo's Corner, available on SoundCloud and Apple iTunes.